The information and opinions presented in this ARC Energy Ideas podcast are provided for informational purposes only and are subject to the disclaimer link in the show notes. This is the ARC Energy Ideas podcast with Peter Tertzakian and Jackie Forrest, exploring trends that influence the energy business. Welcome to the ARC Energy Ideas podcast. I'm Jackie Forrest. And I'm Peter Tertzakian. Well, markets are still going up and down, whether it's the broad markets, oil and gas, you know, there's a lot of volatility out there. Well, actually, speaking of up and down, what was your favorite ride at Disney World? Oh, that's a good question, Peter. Well, it has to be this Star Wars ride. It's called Rise of the Resistance. And of course, you know, there's like two hour lineups for it. So actually, I haven't heard of this. What is it, like a roller coaster? What is it? It's kind of crazy. Like you, after waiting two hours in line, (laughs) you, uh, you go into this cargo ship and then you get captured by Darth Vader and his friends. And mm. then you get taken in for interrogation, like there's actors and everything. But then you get broken out by the resistance. And then they like, hmm. and then, and then there's the ride starts where you're like going around on these cars trying to get away from hmm. all the bad guys and they're shooting at you. But it's pretty incredible. I was really shocked at the quality of the this sophistication. ride. Yeah. yeah, I haven't yeah. been to a theme park like that. Well, I don't know, it's probably 20 years I remember going to Universal Studios in LA, I don't know, it was yeah, well over 20 years ago, and it was sort of this lame King Kong that comes up at you, know, <laughs> sort of like in hindsight. It was cool at the time, right? But in hindsight, I think we've come a long way in terms of the simulations and things. Yeah, that Star Wars area, they had another ride too, which was uh, the Millennium Falcon, where you drive it, but actually the way you drive it is affecting the ride. Like, mm. it, yeah, it's really come a long way, Peter. It's come yeah. a long way, yeah. all these simulations. You don't know where to draw the line between reality and fiction. But the reality is we've got a lot of volatility. So let's talk about that. Yeah. Today we're going to talk about the oil market, some of the more short-term things that have happened. But then we're going to transition to the longer term. And I think when you're in times like this, it can be quite helpful to revisit history as a foundation for what could happen next. Today's energy shock has a lot of similarities to past energy Mm -hmm. shocks. So we thought we would go through some of that work. This is really taking some main points from an article I wrote in the Globe and Mail mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago that was really founded in study of past cycles. So we'll talk about that, And but let's start with the more recent oil news. There has been some bearish things that have happened, although price is still relatively high. One is the concerns that China is having these lockdowns in some cities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, China is still a massive oil market, 14 million barrels a day, so 14% of all world oil demand. So, you know, there are big engine of demand growth as well. So it is always concerning if there's the potential for weaker demand from China and, and the markets have have somewhat softened because of that. Yeah, that's a huge issue. And, you know, but, you know by the way, we're going to be talking about oil markets, not in terms of the day-to-day volatility, because there's no way our podcast can keep up with uh, all the things that go on. But sort of more of a sort of a longer term where all this is trending and headed is really, I think, where we should talk about this stuff. And in China is so important because it's not only the COVID lockdowns, which presumably will eventually end, but they're having a lot of trouble with their economy as well in terms of the real estate issues, productivity issues, the labor market issues, which in part translate back to the COVID issues and so on and so forth. But it's not going to be the economic engine that it was, for example, between 2000 and 2010 when it was rocketing up and caused the huge pull on oil. You know, 2010 to 2020, it started to moderate a little bit. And the last few years, of course, there's the deglobalization trend that 
made China much more, I guess, internally focused. But yeah, there's some real structural problems there. And to assume that the historical growth for oil is going to come from there, I don't think is a good assumption. Yeah. Okay. That's a whole other podcast, mm-hmm. but I think you're right. There's lots changing. And as you say, with the the change of the trade patterns, which we're yep. still kind of yep. not fully understanding what's that going to mean for oil demand. Now, another major piece of news was the U.S. announcing this very large release from their strategic oil reserve, hmm. a million barrels a day over six months. Well, is it- this this is huge, right? Mm-hmm. Just to give you a perspective, a lot of people expect that potentially Russia could lose in the range of two million barrels a day or maybe a bit more. Mm-hmm. So that would be half of that amount. There is expectation, you know, there'll be more releases from other countries as well as a way to help the oil markets out here. Now, interestingly enough, as of March, we still haven't actually seen any decrease in the loadings of oil out of Russia yet. So we haven't actually seen this supply loss mm. yet. And there's a lot of expectation that that's going to happen in April because the contracts that were for March were set before this conflict ever happened, right? right? So the expectation is these loadings are going to slow down, but they may not. It may be that buyers in Asia continue to buy up these barrels and we don't see as big of a loss. So I just wanted to add that caveat is well, the amount of loss is really uncertain. Yeah, I think that that's worth talking about. But before we do that, I want to come back to this million barrels a day, which you said is huge. It is on a 100 million barrel a day market. It's 1%. And that 1% does affect the price of oil. We've seen that. It's come down from, say, the 120-ish level to 100. And I don't know where it's, as of recording, it's around 102. Uh, but let's put this into some numerical context. So a million barrels a day for six months, 365 days in a year. So we'll call it 180 million barrels total, right? What is the size of the total strategic petroleum reserve of the US? I think it's like 700 million or something. Well, I have the number right now. It is down from its peak because they have been drawing out of it over Mm -hmm. the last several years. So it's currently at 568 million. 568, so minus 180 is about uh, 380, I guess. Is yeah, that right? and actually, if you calculate, you know, the IEA has asked countries to have 90 days of net oil imports and storage. It gets them right to that threshold with mm. what's left. It gets them kind of down to the bare minimum of what's, you know, believed to be what you need for security of supply. Mm-hmm. So what is the market saying about all this? I mean, as I said, it, it came down a little bit, but this Ukraine-Russia situation is not a short-term thing, nor is the broader Russia versus the Western world, as we heard a few weeks ago with the Candace Kelshaw interview. Candace is sort of our security intelligence guru who talked about East versus West, basically a revival of the Cold War. And so it just strikes me that the market does realize that a million barrels a day for six months, again, looking past that is just, uh, okay, so what happens after that? Well, and also, as I said, it's it's still not very big relative to the potential outage from Russia, right? Which is still a little unknown, but many people are saying it's going to be more than 2 million barrels a day. So it in itself helps, Mm. but doesn't sort of get us away from the fact that we might have a very tight oil market. Mm. And, you know, there is some concern that potentially one of the reasons the U.S. did this is because maybe they don't think that there's going to be an Iran deal. And so maybe, you know, we're getting this million barrels a day for six months, but we're not getting an additional 1 million barrels a day from Iran. So there's still uncertainty there. Mm-hmm. There's still a ton of uncertainty too on, are we going to see more supply from the OPEC groups like Saudi Arabia and the UAE, who could add potentially 2 million barrels a day to the market. Yeah. But we had this most recent OPEC meeting, 
and they chose to stick with their relatively small increase of 400,000 barrels a day each month. And the reality is they haven't even been meeting that. So I think in the context of all the other uncertainties around where additional supply will come from, it's helpful, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't sort of fill the whole gap in um, that that people are looking for. Two million barrel a day Russian gap, I mean, the numbers that I've seen thrown around are bigger than that. Well, there's people that say three or greater. I guess the reality is, though, we have not yet seen a drop in the oil loadings. So there has been no shortage yet. But it's anticipated in April we'll see that. But, you know, there's huge motivation for refiners to take Russian crude. I'll just tell you about an article in Bloomberg a few weeks ago. A Hungarian refinery made a $33 per barrel margin in March, 10 times higher than the month before, Hmm. because they were buying the deeply discounted Russian crude. So our refiners in India and Asia who could be making that kind of money by buying Russian crude, are they going to... uh, Right. demand it because it's so deeply discounted. Well, sure. And it's, there's the energy security dimension to it, too, where they want to stock up in the event that there is more problems here down the road. So I think you're going to be seeing the purchase of Russian crude behind the scenes by countries that are agnostic to this whole Ukraine-Russia thing, or in the worst case, supportive, and they're paying for it under the table one way or the other. Yeah, well, and, and that's interesting. And now nowadays, we can really monitor this stuff through these loadings of crude oil, right? right so right. I think what every analyst will be doing this month is watching those crude loadings. And if they don't come down, then the supply outage mm. is not going to be what people think it is, right? Right, yeah, so. with all the sophisticated satellite technology and, you know, there's a tanker tracking in the in the whole marine world. You can just go online and type in the name of any ship and you can fix, see where it is on a map, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, so as long as the tankers are continuing to load, the oil is getting into the market. So I think that's something to really watch, obviously, this Iran deal. But to me, this situation, we'll come back to that situation with Saudi and UAE. You know, this this is, um, I think, a, and, and Candace talked about it as well, right? We just don't know where Saudi sits here. Mm-hmm. But this is a big deal. Are they no longer aligned with the U.S.? And, and is this a signal that, you know, they're obviously being very careful to not cross Russia at this point? Or is it maybe just a negotiation thing where Saudi's looking for more help in Yemen to counter that uh, Iranian-backed Houthi rebels, you know, in the situation they've got there? You know, they had an attack on some of their oil infrastructure recently. So is it, you know, a negotiation position? Are they angry about the Iran deal? If the U.S. were to stop pursuing that, would they be able to add that supply? Or is this a more serious change, right? We just, nobody really knows. Yeah, well, President Biden is not friends really with the current prince of Saudi Arabia, MBS. He's friends with his father. And there's a whole, I mean, I don't pretend to be any sort of expert on all these relationships, but the relationship between the U.S. and Saudi is is, is, is tense, further exacerbated by the war that's being fought between Saudi Arabia and Yemen, which is really a proxy war between Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states and Iran on the other side of the Gulf of Hormuz. So, you know, it's all very complicated. And the Americans and others have been not so accommodating and backing the Saudis overtly in that war as well. So there's all sorts of complications and intricacies in the geopolitics of the Middle East. And now you throw the geopolitics of East versus West in the Ukraine-Russia situation. And you have a situation where 
there are many variables in trying to understand these oil markets and it can go either way. It can go spiking up if the military situation in the Middle East gets worse or the markets tighten up there, or it can, as you said, it can go the other way if all of a sudden more Russian oil, more Saudi oil come onto the market. And meanwhile, the West is cranking up in the Permian, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what I'm saying. It's like your ride at Disney World. It's up and down. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But I will say that uh, the West has always relied on that spare capacity being available to help them mm. out. And um, we're not seeing that today. Right. So, so spare capacity yeah. is now coming out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Yeah. Which was instituted in 1974-ish, I think, by the International Energy, then New International Energy Agency, as a response to the oil crises in first 73, then 79. So let's talk about that and yeah. the parallels. Yes, let's talk about that. All right, so back to, to my article in the Globe and Mail, which we will put a link to. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll revisit... Well, first of all, what I did is revisited a lot of the oil shocks in the last 50 or 60 years, and I really found that the oil shocks of the 70s had a lot of resemblance till now. So yeah. there was the 1973 oil shock where Arab countries reduced their exports to nations who supported Israel in the Yom Kippur War. And then in 1978, when Iran, the Iranian Revolution happened, followed by the Iran-Iraq War, there was a huge loss of supply. For example, the Iranian oil production, when that revolution happened, fell by 4 million barrels a day, or 6% of the global oil production, so bigger mm -hmm. than what we're talking about today. And then when the war with Iraq started, it took another 2 million barrels a day yeah. out. So overall, there was about a 10% drop in global production in that kind of 1978, early 80s period. Mm -hmm. And when you adjust the price with, with today's inflation-adjusted dollars, it averaged about $120 over that whole period, and it spiked up to about $140 at one point. Right. So they did have very similar prices to today yeah. in terms of what the economy had to deal with at that time. Yeah, I always use that 125 plus, certainly 140 is the breaking point. You know, That's the point at which, on a real dollar basis, inflation adjusted, where the economy can't hack it anymore and you need real change. So right now... With the price of oil, we'll call it 100 to 120. It's sort of in the, I would call it amplified nuisance zone, where it is forcing some changes. But it's really the changes are coming more, not so much from price, but more from the perspective of worry about supply, complete outage as much as we had in 73. Yeah, yeah. And for a long duration, right? That, right? that was over a number of years. Now, the other thing that's really similar between now and that period is the level of inflation in the economy. Mm -hmm. So between 77 and 1979, the inflation averaged 8% per year, and, and that's pretty much where the U.S. is today. And Canada is not far behind at around 6% per year mm -hmm. as of the latest data point measuring February inflation. So this is the worst since that time. Actually, we've never seen inflation at yep. this level that we're seeing today. We have to go back to this exact same period and to slay that inflation dragon back then, the U.S. Federal Reserve aggressively increased interest rates, and so did other central banks around the world. And at one point, interest rates touched on 20%. So can you mm -hmm. imagine if, if people's mortgages that were floating, suddenly they had a 20% interest rate? But that's what happened back then, Yeah, um, is that people, and they did that to try to slow down the demand for things and, and stop the inflation in the economy. Well, actually, I remember... As a young person who was renting back 
in the early 80s and just had started work a 30-something at that time. Was talking about getting a mortgage at 23%. And <laughs> to be honest, I was naive enough, not even really to, not as being a renter, like it just seemed ridiculous to me, but, and also couldn't fully fathom it not being a homeowner. Yeah, I'm sure it deterred a lot of young people from buying at that point. Now, this caused a double-dip recession. We actually had a recession in the 80 and again in 81. Uh, However, the U.S. uh, continued with this policy because at the time, Paul Volcker, who was the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Mm. you know, he believed that the damage from that recession uh, was going to be smaller than if they continued to let inflation rise. So, you know, today we're in a similar situation. We obviously have the same background interest rates. We have the federal chairman, this, this time Jerome Powell, saying things like, we need to take necessary steps to ensure that high inflation does not become entrenched. We're fully committed to bring inflation back down as it's taking a toll on everybody. And they've announced, they've already done their first increase of 0.25% with possibly another six increases this year. So we'd be seeing maybe interest rates over 2% by the end of the year. And, you know, honestly, that may not be enough, right? It may have to go higher than that. No, I think it's going to go higher than that. It's really to slow the economy down is why they crank up the interest rates and to cool down the inflation that's associated with it because inflation comes from a supply pull, typically. In this instance, it's much more complicated than that, which is why you sort of have tension in terms of whether the central banks are going to raise the interest rates or not because there's a lot of fragility in the world economy already right now as a consequence of post-COVID, as a consequence of this new Cold War that's emerging, Russia, rest of the world, et cetera. So I think they're going to be very careful. I don't foresee 20% interest rates anytime soon. No, I but, don't either. <laughs> but I, I do see higher rates. I do see oil contributing to those higher rates. And I also see probably a recession, which is what we've had back in the 70s or into the 80s. Yeah, so I looked at the last uh, four times we saw oil price get over this $100 to $120 range. And in uh, three out of four of them, there was a recession. Now we had, we just talked about 74. We didn't talk much about 74, but 74, there was a recession. Mm -hmm. Um, There was inflation plus the high energy prices, then the late 70s into the early 80s. Then we had the financial crisis. We had very high oil prices. However, there were other underlying issues with the banking system. However, I, I don't think high energy prices helped at all in that scenario. Mm-hmm. The one time when we had very high oil prices that we didn't have a recession was that 2014 period. And, you know, there was a number of years, there was about three years where we sustained prices near about $130 a barrel for three years. And that was that's inflation adjusted for today. So yeah, in today's yeah, dollars, yeah. We, we were able to do that. But, you know, that was a different environment where we had very low inflation very supportive monetary policy. Remember after the financial well, crisis, how much money was sort of thrown into the system? It was uh, thrown system? in, and it was also the, the re- constant reduction of the interest rate, easing of the policy. Yeah, so we had a very uh, positive macro environment on, on everything else other than the energy prices, right? So mm-hmm. everything else was very cheap. And interesting, what ended that period was technology, right? So then after that many years of high price, new supply came on, yeah. and a lot of it due to... Uh, the shale oil and the technology that was developed that brought down the price yeah. of, of okay. oil. Well, these are just numbers, but we do know in the home, at the consumer level, when the price of energy goes up by any 20 to 50%, I mean, the price of gasoline here has gone up for like it was a buck a liter, I don't know, about a year ago. 
Now it's a buck fifty. So there you go. That's fifty uh, percent in Europe. It's even higher than that. And so let's talk about pain at the consumer level and what happens. Yeah. So in the past, anytime we've had these periods, we've had you know, pan- well, actually in the 70s, there was actually real panic at the pumps. We haven't had that where people were worried about just r- like literally running out of gasoline. And there mm-hmm. were times when stations wouldn't open, a little bit like you experienced in the UK yeah. this yeah. fall, right? Where there was like no gasoline signs and the station yeah. was closed. Yeah. Um, we haven't seen that, but uh, the high prices have always caused things like people striking. You know, in the 70s, the US truckers actually launched a violent nationwide strike in protest of the high hmm. fuel prices. So generally, politicians, you know, they, they're not very popular when energy prices go up. So they do things to reduce the pain. Um, so we saw this in Alberta, actually, uh, beginning April 1. Not an April Fool's Day joke, that one. <laughs> but uh, Jason Kenney taking a victory lap there by uh, reducing the price of gasoline by, you know, in the range of 13 cents by getting rid but of the gasoline a, tax a here. temporary yeah. reduction in the fuel tax. That, yes. That's typically added to every liter of gasoline. This is happening in many countries around the world. Yes, yeah. Already. So it's not just uh, here at all, and we're going to see more of it. And then, of course, in the past, strategic oil reserves will be tapped. We're obviously mm-hmm. seeing that in a big way today. Now, the ironic thing about all this is the real thing that's going to blunt the oil shock is people using less. Right. So the more you uh, take away that price signal, the more they're incented to just go about their daily lives like they were before. So I understand why politicians do it, and it probably is necessary for political stability. However, it doesn't necessarily help with uh, the supply and no. demand problem. These are regressive policies, and it even goes further than that. We've talked about it on prior podcasts here since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where countries um, go back to burning coal. Mm-hmm. Go back, people go back. Yeah, people don't want to, they just find alternatives. Um, Now, traditionally, if you've got oil prices in this range, you might see oil demand slowing in the range of 1% Hmm. because of the price signal, assuming governments don't, they're not probably able to get rid of all of of the impact. And that comes from people starting to choose to cancel trips, carpool, use public transportation. Now, the question around I'm thinking about is, is it possible this time it could be much larger? And I know you followed that IEA 10-point plan that they mm-hmm. said could reduce oil demand by 2.7 million barrels a day in four months. So that's huge, right? Like that would be yeah, equal yeah. to what people think maybe the loss would be from Russia. If you could accomplish that, there would be no oil shortage. Well, right? you, you you could. I mean, but just before we get to that, just to point out that Europe is already at that point. Right. I mean, the prices are so extreme over there. It's happening here, eight time zones away. Like it's we've. This is the land of plenty. And by the way, in Alberta, yeah, our fuel taxes have been momentarily reduced. So I point out to people like we don't feel the pain of this energy situation like the Europeans do. And you know, I can't speak for other countries, but you know, in developing countries as well. This is a very serious situation where already people who can't afford the basics all of a sudden have to pay more. So I want to, you know, your point about political stability is a super important one because if the price of gasoline and diesel and things go up, it doesn't take much before you get social unrest. We've already seen the equivalent of trucker protests in places like Greece and Spain. At least I've read the, the articles about that. I think. Governments basically have to introduce these regressive policies just to keep the civilians 
or shield the civilians from this kind of pain. Yes, yeah, and unfortunately, a lot of those developing countries, they may not have the fiscal means to do that, right? Right, right. especially yeah. post-pandemic. So, yeah. it's a, you know, this situation is really actually very new still. I think, I don't know what we're, six weeks into the Russia-Ukraine situation, the full effects of it have yet to be felt, whether it's the economic lag and potential slowdown in various parts of the world, including potentially here, to right at the consumer level, the, uh, the energy prices. The last point I want to talk about is that the other thing when you look at these past oil shocks is they did really change the future of energy policy. In the 70s, you know, energy security became a big focus. There was encouraged growth in supply of, of domestic oil and gas, but also alternative energies like geothermal, mm-hmm. synthetic fuels. Cars were regulated for fuel efficiency. Mm-hmm. Power plants with oil were replaced. So there was a lot of changes. And actually, if you look at U.S. oil demand per person, it dropped 15% over 10 years as a result of some of these policies that were put in place because of those oil shocks. Yeah, so, well, a lot of the substitution that happened was the displacement of oil and power plants, as you just said, because a lot of oil was burned in power plants, not only in the United States, but in many countries around the world and in Europe. And so the rise of nuclear power, which was a policy initiative to get off oil, mm-hmm. and nuclear power was ready and waiting. The first power plant was in the late 50s, and then in the 60s there was a small build-out starting to occur. By the price shocks, it was a technology that was ready and waiting to be scaled up very quickly. So that's an example of centralized displacement and substitution of oil. Now it's a decentralized problem in the, in the for example, the uh, transportation market, right? because you have to swap out entire capital stock of fleets of vehicles and trucks and mm-hmm. heavy trucks and marine and everything. And... Uh, yeah, so it's it's just it's just harder. It's much more behaviorally dependent today getting off oil than it was in the seventies. Seventies, you could just swap out the power plant, and at the light socket, people didn't really understand the changes in the yeah. background. Yeah, no, it was an easier or, switch. Okay, well let's let's switch just to finish off the podcast with what's likely to happen now. So my takeaway from my article was first thing will be. People uh, in Europe and, and other countries will look at friendly sources of hydrocarbon supply. U.S., Canada, Norway, U.K., Australia. These are places that have very stable geopolitical environments that I think will be favored for supply in the future. In the short term, we're going to see more use of, of coal, as we've already talked about. However, I do think governments will prioritize the production of domestically produced clean energy as well. It's going to yeah. take more time for that to make a difference. You know, it's more of a 10-year time frame, but things like electric cars, energy efficiency, energy storage, alternatives like geothermal, biofuels, hydrogen, all of those are going to get a lot more supported. And 10 years from now, I think they'll be much more substantial sources of energy than they would have been without this crisis. I don't disagree. I think you're going to see diversification into all of those alternative energy pathways. The issue, again, is that this energy crisis is immediate, right? And I think it's going to take I'm just going to throw a number out here. It's like like three to five years of regressive scrambling and policies before we get the momentum to go more progressively into the transition. So there's going to be some lost lost time as a consequence of all this. Yeah, no, I agree. So in the short term, it's going to be painful. There could be a recession. We talked about that. The pain of high energy prices, you know, consumers are going to have to deal with that and 
and countries as well, right? Because when they cut these taxes, they lose income as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're probably going to have higher greenhouse gas emissions as you know people do things like burn more coal. But as we get out further in the background, you know, I think we're going to see growth in some of these alternatives, and we're going to be in a position where uh, we have much. Uh, more diverse and secure energy supply because it's going to be coming from more suppliers mm-hmm. and more types of energy. Right. Right. All right, that will wrap up the podcast. Great. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on the app that you listen to and tell someone else about us. For more ideas and insights, visit arcenergyinstitute.com.